So you've written for the Metro Times, of course, uh, here in Detroit, and you also have a column at the Tucson Weekly called Tucson Salvage. And in your writing, you, you talk about people uh, basically that are living their lives on the fringes of you know society. And I was curious, what is it about that lifestyle that attracts you to want to document it? I think all my favorite people are, are, are ones who are overcoming incredible odds to survive. And, and I think particularly in, in the Spent Saint stories, I, I was obviously really attracted to that. I think people are more interesting to me who, who have these seemingly insurmountable odds, whether they're self-created or circumstantial. But it's usually people who are like riddled with depression and addictions and perhaps things they're born with. Or They're just far more interesting to me. And I always, I, I tend to, at least in my mind, I like, I tend to look for the beauty in that and try to find the beauty in those people. Um, a lot of friends of mine, I grew up, um, died from addictions and suicide and that sort of thing. So it's what I know, <laughs> too. I, it really makes me angry when people look down on that on that part of society. And as a writer, I always chose, even when I was at Metro Times as an editor, I chose to try to write about people who were fighting and who weren't celebrities. You and I have talked about this before, but we both have a similar kind of, uh, our connection being you're from Tucson, you moved to Detroit, have your experiences here. I'm from Detroit. I moved to Tucson I know, some of your ago. Tucson homies say hello. And <laughs> yeah. I can't believe I just used the word homies, but... <laughs> But, you know, I, I think there is a, and it might not be seen on the surface, but there's a similarity in the way both of those landscapes, Detroit being, uh, you know, in some of its decay and in the winter, the darkness and the cold, and then in the Sonoran Desert in Tucson, the heat and the, the, the desert, the emptiness of the desert, there, there does to the me desert? feel like a psychological, like, similarity. Do absolutely. You, do you, yeah. Absolutely. It's that, <laughs> that's a really good observation. In fact, this, the, the actions are this, the cities are very similar in that way. And in, in Tucson, especially in the Sonoran Desert, in Tucson, you'll, you'll, you've noticed that it has a real end of the world feel. It's like you step outside of the city and it's like, oh my gosh, nothing should be surviving here because this is just desert and cactus and it's dry and it's hot and things die and that's all there is. And when I first moved to Detroit, it was the same thing, only cold there. It's the same thing, really, only really hot. And I just, like I was saying earlier, there's so much beauty in that to me. You write about it so beautifully. Can you read from the book an excerpt for us? Sure. I was driving home after a party one night with my right hand covering my right eye while the left held the steering wheel and attempted to keep the car on the road. It wasn't easy to keep that piece of junk Ford Escort from bouncing off curbs. It was February and the roads were icy and the tires were bald. This wasn't the West, and I never learned how to drive wretched roads streaked in ice and snow. We must have hit the curb at least a half dozen times along Woodward Avenue after it narrowed into downtown and after heading the wrong way on a one-way streets doubly obscured by the snow and that steam that spews from Detroit's manhole covers on our way to Bobian Street where we lived. Riding shotgun was my girlfriend Jenna, who was mostly passed out. She was in a foul mood too and had that grudging jaw. When I swerved to avoid what I thought was a duck and slammed into a giant pothole, which was momentarily sobering enough to realize there was no duck wandering across the below-freezing Detroit street, Jenna's head bounced hard against the passenger side window. That got her going about my crappy driving. 
Then she went off on the blue hair, stepping from the garish Greektown casino into idling shuttle buses at 2 a.m., armed with shoulder bag oxygen tanks. At this hour, the buses and the, cas- and the casino's pulsing arteries of gold and its phallic neon sign provided the only lights in downtown Detroit, lights that delivered those old folks to places from the city's wreckage. That they are even here at this hour in the morning was always a wonder. We made it home. No matter how drunk we were on any given night or whose eyes were negotiating the actual roadways, no matter where we were in Detroit, we'd always managed to pull that dented escort into ugly green dark potholed parking lot and stumble into our building. It was miraculous. Of course, it never hurt our chances that Detroit traffic laws were optional. City cops had better things to do than surveil city streets for drunk drivers. After closing time on any given night, you'll see rusted-out jalopies and silver SUVs and aging pimp caddies all swerving on the streets like herrings fighting upstream. A drunkard's paradise, I'll tell you. I should have been dead. Death was an entertainable option for me because I wasn't grateful for being alive. That made me a real gentleman. I stopped giving a crap in a city that didn't give a shit. Detroit can do that to you, the same way the booze can do that to you. An old meth dealer back in Arizona, this guy called Jesus, once told me during one of my five-day speed benders that if you don't give a shit about living, you're pretty much invincible. My general attitude toward life directly reflected the city of Detroit, which is in a ruin, really. All jagged edges and cold, hard lines and darkness. It's the most godforsaken failure of a once great American industrial giant that you could ever dream up. In the spring and summer and fall, you can actually taste the city's desolation. The wind carries particles of wood and rust from the husks of abandoned houses and crumbling auto factories. So you're actually breathing into your lungs the city of Detroit and sometimes coughing it up. It gets into your blood that way, your nervous system. That sense of diminished achievement and failure gets inside of you, and mostly you're unaware. So you move around the city with the suppression in your system, and it floats all around you, too, because anywhere you look in Detroit, you see decay in its population, in its infrastructure, in its quality of life. After a while, you sputter and stop like a car after someone dumps salt into its gas tank. In wintertime, things get smaller, insular. Detroit is surrounded by lakes and waterways, so it already feels like an island. And when those waters would freeze over, I'd feel walled in. When the sun dropped at 5 p.m. each day, I'd begin to long for things that feel unnatural and unattainable, like racing through the Sonoran Desert on horseback or appreciating in person the intricate beauty of the Mexican eel steak butterfly or staying stoned for long days on a warm beach down in Mozambique, even though I was never a stoner or a butterfly enthusiast or a fan of riding around on horses. Those unattainable longings drove me to drink more and earlier in the day too and became my normal. Move to Detroit when you're already in the dumps and the outcome is a foregone conclusion. I was drawn to this city. I moved here from Phoenix for a journalism gig at the Detroit Weekly. But I also moved here because the city, to me, is absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. It's a city so bent on demonstrating to anyone who will notice that no matter how great something is, all that is created within it will crumble and die. It's absolutely godless.